0: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. In his first tweet of the year, President Donald Trump criticised Pakistan's army. This week, we're asking whether the men in uniform are swaying Pakistan in the wrong direction. My guest is Imran Khan, Pakistani cricketer turned politician, who's running for the office of Prime Minister in the elections in July. After 22 years of trying, and now as head of the second-largest party, the PTI, he's promising a new era in politics, long tainted by corruption and military coups. Before that, Imran Khan was used to a different kind of spin. He captained Pakistan to victory in the 1992 Cricket World Cup. But in a society divided between civilian and military rule, can he prevail and how healthy is Pakistan's democracy? With us in the studio is also Edward McBride, our Asia editor. Hello, Ed. Hi there. And Imran Khan. Welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Now, was there anything to President Trump's complaint that you can understand? The security situation has improved, but there's still a lot of indications that radicals do use Pakistan as a base for attacks in Afghanistan.
1: Firstly, Donald Trump does not have a proper understanding of Pakistan especially the the whole uh, Park-Afghan situation as it has evolved since 1979 when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. It's a very complex situation. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump, the way he uh, made statements blaming Pakistan for the lack of success, 16 years of uh, military solutions in Afghanistan, blaming Pakistan and Pakistan Army. I think that People in Pakistan were deeply hurt. They felt that his remarks were ignorant of the sacrifices that Pakistan had given in in what was the American war on terror. People like me who kept saying we should have not entered this war, that was not our war. We had nothing to do with 9-11. Why were we suddenly in the eye of the storm? And unfortunately, um, people like us were overruled by a military dictator, General Musharraf. And he went into the war, and he then quoted George Bush, who said that this time we won't abandon Pakistan. And Musharraf assured the people of Pakistan, and after 70,000 people died, over $100 billion lost to the economy, guess what? We have made scapegoats by people like Donald Trump for them not winning the 16-year war in Afghanistan. The situation has improved in Pakistan because as the American footprint decreased, the level of fanaticism went down. You see, what is very important for people to understand, that this so-called war on terror in Afghanistan, there were two components that got together. One was the Pashtun nationalism, half the Pashtuns in, uh, in Afghanistan, and then the Pashtuns on this side of the border, and tribal areas in between, which is a porous border with Afghanistan. So firstly, the moment the Americans attacked the Taliban, they became Pashtuns. So the Pashtuns got support from both sides. And then jihadism, which was brought in by the Americans when they brought Muslims from all over the world, like al-Qaeda, trained by CIA and ISI, fighting the Soviets, the jihadis and the uh, Pashtun nationalism got together. And Pakistan bore the brunt of that. Because Pakistan Army was considered collaborating with the Americans, so all the attacks in Pakistan were against the security forces. So that's why we took a battering. Once the American footprint decreased, so did the level of uh, fanaticism in Pakistan.
0: Let Let me broaden out, if I could, to Pakistani politics as we're in the run up to the election. It's often seen, at least from the outside, as a, a bit of a a mess, oscillating between civilian and military rule and, and somewhat lurching from one crisis to another and a very fragmented politics that you know, you've you spent a, a long time sort of struggling to get where you have today with your party. So what is the key thing that now needs to happen to Pakistan to sort of dispel that idea that whatever happens, it's always chaos?
1: Well, firstly, you must understand that the reason why Military played such an important part in Pakistan's history is because of Pakistan after it gained its independence became a security state There was a threat India was much bigger than Pakistan People who grew up and I'm the first generation who grew up in Pakistan. There had been massive violence in partition over a million two million people were killed crossing the border and uh, So people grew up with this fear that the smaller country would be swamped by a bigger country. And so therefore, it became a security state. An army played a huge part in it. Unfortunately, because the civilians, when they came in, when the army used to withdraw, the civilians would come in. Unfortunately, they were not prepared for governance. And so we would again have the army come back. Now in Pakistan, things have changed. The whole political thought process has evolved. No longer is military or martial law supposed to be a solution anymore. There is a consensus amongst the political elites, the media, the intellectuals, that uh, whatever happens, the military's job is not to run the country. Our now big problem is this. And contrary to what, again, the Western world looks upon, the Muslim world, that there's some Fight going on between these liberals and these uh, fundamentalists or fanatics since the Iranian Revolution. That's how West looks upon Muslim world. The real problem is governance. What Pakistan needs is governance, and governance uh, is um, is what we hope to deliver. And corruption destroys governance. It diverts money from human development to these big mega projects with mega kickbacks. And so that's really uh, the challenge
2: for Pakistan.
0: Might come back to you on on corruption, but on the role of the army, as Imran uh, laid it out there. Add your thoughts.
2: You mentioned there was this consensus, but I'm not sure the uh, the army sort of received the memo on the consensus. I mean, the army still seems to conduct itself in a way that's very different from the way uh, you might expect an army to behave in a developed country for example the the civilian government asked for the army's help to disperse demonstrators last year and the army said no you know the army sort of refused an order from from the prime minister right the army's critics have this funny way of um disappearing from the airwaves we've got right now uh, GOTV Pakistan's most popular TV channel where where literally all the cable operators pulled the plugs it's it's not you you can't watch it in half the country You may say the army is not involved, but certainly somebody is is helping the army out in terms of pushing its wishes into the political sphere.
1: Well, two things, uh, Edward. Number one, what you call the army, basically it is the army chief. So the army chief decides on what, in in his three years tenure, what the army's role is going to be. That's number one. Number two is the quality of civilian government. For instance, Zulfiqar Bhutto when he became the prime minister, and probably the last civilian prime minister of quality in Pakistan, the army's role shrank in Pakistan. It no longer had a space. Uh, The the, uh, civilian government was all powerful. Unfortunately, when you have weak governments, when you have corrupt governments lacking uh, moral authority, because democratic governments function in moral authority, when you lose that moral authority, then that space, other actors appear. An army being the most organized group in Pakistan then takes more space.
0: But come to the TV channel, to GEO. I mean, in your understanding, why is it off the air in much of the country?
1: I think it's because uh, in this one and a half years of probably one of the most critical times in Pakistan history, first time ever a sitting prime minister is disqualified by a Supreme Court of Pakistan. And on my petition, I'm proud to say, on money laundering. Now... What uh, this one media group started doing was, which does not happen and would never happen in Britain, for instance, it actually started protecting the man who was disqualified by the Supreme Court, the Prime Minister, ex-Prime Minister, and it's the whole news network was protecting him. And well, why and, not?
0: Hang on, Look, we're in a season here in future where we're discussing free speech in the world, around the world. Why not just let people decide? Why not then have other media voices up against that and let GEO continue to broadcast I, across I, the I, nation?
1: You should not look upon Pakistani society from British eyes because you have an involved democracy here. I mean, it would be unthinkable in Britain, for instance, for one of your media groups defending someone who's been disqualified by Supreme Court with tons of evidence of siphoning of money which should go to your uh, helping poverty in your country, in foreign banks, you would not have a media house being paid money to defend them. That in itself well, is a crime. You have a
0: plurality of views. I mean, that's it, the idea, isn't it?
1: There is a big difference between different views, and there's a big difference when you're paid billions and billions of rupees to actually
2: protect a certain criminal. Let me give you another example then. So it's not just who the media speaks up for, and of course there, there may well be bias there. But it's also what the media doesn't talk about. So, for example, your party is is running one of the four uh, states of Pakistan and – there's a big movement in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa for civil rights, in effect, right? The idea that the army's campaign, while very effective at quashing terrorism, has also caught in its dragnet lots of innocent people who have no due process. This is, a, this is a huge movement, big protests all around the country, also in Karachi, where you're going to be standing uh, in, the, in the forthcoming election. I looked at the Pakistani papers today, you, you wouldn't know it was happening. How can that be a, a successful,
1: thriving media? I'll say two things about it, uh, Edward. Number one, I absolutely sympathize with all the things that the, the, the Pashtun movement is saying because I've been saying that for 15 years. My, I s- gave a speech in the National Assembly that do not send your army into the tribal areas of Pakistan uh, because the army is going into civilian areas. There are villages there. What sort of war are they fighting? There were no armies there. There were no tanks there. So when an army goes into civilian areas, anywhere in the world, there are mass violations of human rights. There have to be, you know, you're, you're, you're bombing villages because there are some uh, insurgents there. So the, what they're saying is absolutely correct. There were massive uh, violations of human rights which were bound to take place. There were drone attacks taking place from once the Americans bombing them, uh, civilians in villages, civilians being killed, and then Pakistan army reacting to guerrillas by going into uh, villages. So, what they're saying is right. But the uh, worry in Pakistan is that they are being now being funded by anti-Pakistani forces at a time when Pakistan is still fighting a war on terror. There's still bombings going on in Pakistan. And what they're worried about is that they are being financed from abroad and might actually play a role which might again destabilize Pakistan, because this stability has come as a, at a huge
0: price
2: last thought on that, Ed McBride? Well, I'd just be very interested, you know, if you do find yourself in a position in government uh, after the election, how do you square the circle? You seem to agree there are some problems in the army's conduct. In some cases, there are some problems in terms of of the army kind of exceeding its brief, depending on the strength of the civilian mm-hmm. government. How do you put that genie back in the box? By developing a proper uh, a, a democratic government
1: with uh, good governance. Uh, you know, uh, Look, the defense of a democracy are the people of a country. So Erdogan, when he had a problem with the army twice, once he went to the polls, got a bigger majority. Second time when they did a coup, he actually had people come out in the streets. So people defend democracy. So Are, are, my, are you
0: suggesting that Turkey's President Erdogan is a, is a good example of leadership? I, because uh,
1: no, what only, might
0: raise some doubts about that?
1: I'm only talking about one aspect of it. In other words... When, when a democratic government is in trouble, the people defend it, provided it has done enough for the people. So uh, that's my one point. Secondly, I come back to this Pashtun movement. One thing that needs to be done, and that is to merge FATA with KP. So the tribal areas must become part of the rest of Pakistan. And that's the way you protect the rights. At the moment, they are non-people. They have no rights. They have no say in the assembly. They have no courts there to protect their rights. My only difference with them is that the idea is not to start a campaign against the army when the army still is fighting the war. It is to merge it, give it a proper structure so that we can protect the human rights.
0: Let me move from the big vision, if I could, to to the personal. You've just got married uh, for the third time to Bush Romaneke. Congratulations uh, on that. There's been quite a lot of response to this wedding on social media, not least to the image of your new wife fully veiled at the nikah ceremonies and marking your marriage. Her face isn't visible at all. And that has called forth a view from a lot of people inside the country and outside that this is a sort of religious conservatism gone too far for women. What's your view?
1: Well, first of all, the amount of uh, clothes a, a human being wants to wear, how much they want to wear or how little they want to wear, is a personal choice. So my wife, she's always been a recluse. She's a Sufi. She is not a social type. I married her for two reasons. Uh, When I was younger, the main thing that would have featured in my mind to get married were physical looks. At my age, I began to realize that physical looks have the shortest expiry date. You lose them the quickest. What to me matter most is, number one, the character, and number two, the mind, the mind to keep someone interested, and a character is what makes you respect a person. And, you know, I respect her and I...
0: Uh... But you know, her choice is her choice. But this was an image that was going to go out there where some Pakistani women felt that there is a modern Pakistan, there is a modern Pakistan that wants to move on women's rights and opportunities. Was this, in hindsight, the best way of, of underlining that message when we had an image of a fully covered face, not just the covering of the head for religious observance.
1: Uh, it is a personal choice again. Uh, whatever my wife, whatever clothes she wants to wear are her choice. It's got nothing to do with anyone. I don't care what anyone says. It's none of their business.
0: But how do you respond to the full face veil?
1: I feel that that's her choice. I feel that it is an individual's choice. What I find shocking is when people force their views on other people. What to me is a liberal person is who allows, who does not impose their views on other people, that
2: allow people to do what they think, how they want to live their lives. Would you stand up in the same way for somebody who wanted to wear a bikini, you know, in the beaches of Karachi? I, for me, well, it's, it's a personal choice. But in every society, you know,
1: you if you expect uh, someone, uh, there are certain codes of conduct, culture, so, you know, that would not be looked upon uh, in Karachi. They would not accept it. And so that's why they wouldn't wear it. Similarly, if in Pakistanis, we, they would have certain views about uh, when they come to England. You, uh, no one can impose their views on your society. So I think what is much more important is you should respect people's views, their culture. But what when, should when not happen is London. this cultural when imperialism
0: to London now and you see a lot more head covering. Does that in some sense seem odd to you? I mean, I understand your argument about choice, but I suppose the the argument on the other side is a lot of little girls growing up don't have an immense amount of choice if a certain form of covering is imposed on them as they grow up.
1: Forcing people to uh, put the amount of clothes they want or the uh, amount of clothes they don't want is their choice. All I'm saying is that you should not force people into it, and we should not force our views on other people. And as far as my wife goes, for me, the most important thing is no longer, you know, the amount of clothes she wears. It's, is she interesting to me? Or does she have a character which I respect? That's what matters much to me. Might not have when I was 20 years old, but it does now.
0: I want to go back a a few years, perhaps not when you were 20 years old, but you you have a Past life in London, you know Britain very well indeed, and so you've lived a long time in two very different cultures, haven't you? In the sort of in the West and in Pakistan, what would you say? You know, what are the bits of each that you would bring to the other?
1: I could say a lot about this. Every culture has its strengths and weaknesses. So, I when I came to England, it was a totally different life, and I found. What appealed to me most was in Britain, a welfare state. We didn't have that in Pakistan. First time I saw a welfare state. Uh, the democracy in Britain, we were, I grew up in a military dictatorship, so I, we didn't know what democracy was. And I think what I loved was uh, the way people looked after animals here, you know. So these things, the compassion, the justice system, that appealed to me the, most of all because we lacked that in our society. What I loved in my own country was, number one, the family system. I love the aspect of a whole family helping each other. You know, people grow up in families, the whole extended family, and a certain security that gives you. Secondly, what I love is a, a love in my part of the world. People are basically very spiritual. So people have this great belief in the hereafter. They give a lot more charity. I mean, I'm the biggest charity collector in Pakistan, and I get astounded by it. The poorest of the poor will give some charity. So there's is spiritual life. There's much more spirituality there. Here you have, you know, all the freedoms that democracy brings.
0: Imran Khan, thank you very much for joining us today. And listeners, if you'd like to comment on what you've just heard, go to economist.com slash open future. Join our debate about Pakistan and the West. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. We're offering 12 issues for $12 or 12 of your English pounds. And please don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist.